Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 24 of Inside the West End. We're on Twitter. Come and find us. Follow us at Inside West End. We've got a page on Facebook, Inside the West End Podcast. And if you want to get in contact, then email insidethewestend at gmail.com. Sometimes when we make this show, I kind of think, what the hell is happening? That means I'm sitting here in front of this person having the right to ask them questions. Today was one of those days. Me and Rob sat with Nigel Wright the conversation you're about to hear is with one of the most influential musicians, arrangers, producers, composers in the music industry or anywhere around the world. Having spent the 80s working, producing and playing as a musician on lots and lots of club tracks, dance tracks, Nigel Wright became Andrew Lloyd Webber's go-to music producer for all of his cast recordings uh, and and arrangements on West End shows. On top of this, Nigel has also worked on all of the big talent TV searches such as X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, American Idol and also the ones looking for leads in musicals such as The Nancy Search, uh, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, Superstar, Grease for Simon Cowell and not just in the UK all around the world. When Nigel expressed an interest in coming on, we literally jumped at the opportunity. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the industry. Before we get to the chat with Nigel, a massive thank you again to all those of you who have donated. If you've not donated yet, it's really easy. Go on our website, insidethewestend.com, click on the donate button and support us financially so we can keep making these shows for you for free. Also, do you shop online with Amazon? If you do, you can support our show at no extra cost. Head to InsideTheWestEnd.com, click on any of the Amazon adverts. It takes you to Amazon. Your shopping costs you exactly the same as normal. But Amazon, give us a small kickback as a thank you. Now, here's our chat with Nigel Wright. This is Nigel Wright and you're listening to Inside the West End. Nigel Wright, welcome to Inside the West End. Thank you. We were discussing earlier, how do we introduce you to our audience? Because the irony is that people may not know your name, but we have an audience of theatre fans who you can pretty much say that I'd imagine everyone listening to this has listened to or watched work which you have influenced uh, through your work at RUG over the years and the many other productions that you work on as an arranger, a record producer, a musical director on the TV talent searches, as well as the big, uh, really useful group productions. There's pretty much no one else we could interview who we could say that about. It's kind of jack of all trades, isn't yeah. it? Master of none. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we kind of get on to hearing about your roles in the world of theatre, mm. we'd love to take you back and hear about the young oh. Nigel growing up. Oh, God. Uh, born in Bristol. My father was a postmaster and we had there were four kids so mum was at home Uh, dad was also a lay preacher which is what brought me to music because 
every Sunday we'd go to church and every Christmas the brass band would play. And I think I was something like seven when I said to him, I want to play in a brass band. And Dabby and Dad made that happen for me. What instrument did you play? I did three weeks on French horn or English horn, three weeks on cornet, hated them all, and then I ended up on trombone. And where did did, did you stay on brass or did you move into other instruments as you grew up? I, I stayed on brass uh, for about four or five years till I got very savvy and realised you weren't going to earn much money playing a brass instrument and then I took up keyboards and bass and guitar and everything else you possibly could take up to make sure I was well covered in the future. Are you one of those people who can just pick up an instrument and instinctively have an idea of how it's going to work? It worked backwards for me. I, I, I Once I'd learnt trombone and music, I found I had an ear for arranging and orchestrating. And, and when I was 11, I joined a little dance band um, that played locally. I started to write their arrangements for them, so I could listen to a record and work out what the bass guitar was doing, what the guitar was doing. So I started to write scores and parts for bands. I then realised that if I picked up a guitar and I'd written out what they were doing, I worked out how to do it myself. So I kind of taught myself in reverse by writing it first, listening to what they were doing, and then then do, doing it myself. And by 13 years old, I ran a business selling orchestrations to bands at all the mecca halls around England called Gig Plan Arrangements. At 13? Yeah, at 13 I was at grammar school and I used to leave school at 5 o'clock and go to my office, which was above a record shop, sit and write till about midnight. And then the guy who I was partners with would come in on his way to school and at 7 in the morning we'd package it all up and post it out. And we used to charge between 8 and £12.50 in arrangement. What did your family make of this? <sighs> they just accepted it. My dad used to pick me up sometimes and take me and he would drive me to gigs because I was in a band I was playing trombone in a band where we did Tijuana Brass and he would take me there and pick me up afterwards Um, they just got used to it my my dad's mother was a songwriter and my mum's mother was a music hall artist so they'd been brought up in that type of thing it skipped a generation because none of them did it so I was the only one in the family that had gone on into music and, and they encouraged it were you aware at the time that you were doing things which most 13-year-olds don't? No, no, I was just doing whatever I fancied doing and, and I enjoyed it and loved it. And I got to 15 and I remember sitting with the headmaster at Bristol Grammar School saying to my dad that he wanted me to do maths, chemistry and physics because they were my specialist subjects. And my dad said, no, he wants to do music. And they said, we don't do music here. He'll have two hours a week. And my dad said, fine, we're leaving. And he said, come on, and we got up and we left. I had already got a professional job by then, and I was working four days a week at the local Locarno, earning quite good money. What's that? What's it's, a... it's kind of like a ballroom back in those days where... <laughs> that makes you feel old. <laughs> <laughs> there was the Mecca and the Locarno and all these big and the top-ranked suites. Every Saturday night, they had a live band or two live bands. Instead of discos nowadays, it was always live bands. Mm. And I came up on that circuit. In Ireland, I think they called that the show bands. Yeah, we, we, we were kind of show bands, but um, I, at 15, I was in the Tommy Hawkins show band and played in a, in a jazz club on weekends and played in a jazz band. And, and as a teenager, what, what else did you do? Did you have like, other hobbies or was it just music? Nothing. I, I, I would literally leave school, go to the office, write the arrangements, go and do my gig, come back, finish the arrangements... On the weekend, I'd catch up on my arranging and I'd sit and listen at home to new records and 
ring up the band leaders and say, I've got this one, do you want this one? And by the time, if, if I got three people who wanted it, it was worth writing. What did your friends make of you? Did, did you fit in or did you have friends even? Uh, I had lots of friends, but they were, they were in the bands I was in and, and they were older. You know, I was in a brass band. I joined the City of Bristol Brass Band when I was 14 on Trombone 3 and they all were older men who used to look after me and they used to take me up to the bar and buy me a half a bitter till Dad arrived to take me home. So I lived in a very, very adult world. The band I was in when I was 15, they were all in their 30s and 40s. I was, I was very mature in that age, in that music bracket, because I could do something that not many of them could do. I could sit and write them an arrangement and put all the music out in front of them, they could play it, and it sounded like the original record. Do you think of that period in your life fondly? Um... I don't really think about it a lot. It was it it just happened. It was a bit messy because I moved from place to place. I, I moved up to Grimsby. My dad drove me up there when I was fifteen, and I joined the band there. And then they got moved to South Wales to Merthyr Tydfil, which was another pretty much not a very nice place to be. But I was in the band, and I had to be in the band. And it wasn't until seventeen or eighteen when I got to London that I actually started to enjoy it. Back then, it was just a job that I made great money out of. And what? As a listener of music, what music was exciting you at the time growing up? What were, who were the bands that you would, would always buy their record or go and see? Until I was 17 or 18, I didn't bother to listen to anything. Nothing excited me. I was just jobbing and writing. And then come 17, 18, and I moved to London, and I discovered Earth, Wind & Fire and Al Jarreau and all that, George Benson, all that, that type of jazz. That really did it for me. Do you think that's with the brass, the brass element? Because of the brass element, uh, uh, because of the arranging, because of the cleverness of the chords, because I could listen to a pop record and it would bore me to tears because I could say that's, that's that chord sequence and it's been used ten times before. When you listen to their records, I used to go, whoa, I've never heard that before, and would go home and try and work out what it was, just for my own interest. You know, I think when I was 17, I sat down and wrote Boogie Wonderland, full score, for no reason other than... I wanted to do it and it stayed in the drawer for about 10 years before I ever got to a band who wanted a copy of it and I just had it but I wrote it note for note every part and of course then you didn't have Sibelius you didn't have like no, a computer all, program it was all written. handwritten all handwritten yeah but tell me you moved to London you said when you were 17 what brought you here I was in a band in Bristol it was an 18 piece band or 60 piece music. a lot of musicians in those days and the guitarist and bass player fell out and had a punch up in the middle of the night, in the middle, in front of the audience one night. The guitarist was the band leader. He sacked the bass player who walked out that night. I got drafted in the next day to play bass because I knew I could play bass. So I'm, I was playing trombone on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the dance band era. Friday, Saturday, I played guitar and sang. Came down and did the pop stuff, and suddenly they put me straight over the bass guitar, and, and I was there for about three weeks. And he got a job in London at the Cat's Whiskers with a band called the Nicky North and the Northern Lights. And they then did, Tina Charles was in the band, Trevor Horn was on bass. It was kind of quite a, an eclectic mix. And they had a contract to make, back then, what was called Hot Hits Records. And once a week you made the top charts, the top 20 cover versions, but we used a full orchestra and all the session singers. And they were given away free of 50p with petrol in Chevron petrol stations. And it was a real lucrative contract. And Nicky uh, had the contract and he had a five-year deal on it. He was two years in. And they asked him to do a cover of Evita, the, the musical, which had just been big. 
and Steve, the bass player, rang me up and said, I'm up shit creek, to use my language. I can't write. I can't really read. So he drove to Bristol, where I was living, and I spent two days and two nights writing the entire album's bass parts and chord charts for him and the guitarist so that they could record this cover album on the Monday. On the Tuesday night, he said, um, the, the band leader, Nicky North, wants to meet you. I said, why? He said, because he did, straight away didn't believe that I'd written this, asked me who had. So he said, come up. So I got a train, and he lived in Croydon, and I went to his house, and he sat me down, and he said, this is what I do. And he said, I'm a bit stuck. I'm trying to do Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel, and I can't write for alto sax. Would you do it for me? So I went in the in the dining room, and I sat there and wrote it all out for him, and, and I said, look, I'm going to have to go. I've got to get a train to Bristol. He said, no, stay the night. I want you to come to the studio tomorrow and see what we do. So... I stayed, I went into the studio the next day and I walked in. I gave the music to my arrangement out and there was a 40-piece orchestra. He said, oh, well, yeah, you might as well conduct it. And I went, uh... He said, no, you can do it, you've written it. So he left me on the floor, with you, introduced me to the orchestra. This is Nigel Wright, he's going to How conduct. old are you? 18, just turned 18. Uh, all the big names back then, Henry Lather on trumpet, all, all those names I'd heard of were sitting in front. It happened to me twice in my life, once there and once in Los Angeles, that I suddenly faced everybody I'd heard of. So I conducted it. They all applauded. I went to go up the stairs. He said, you're doing so well, do the rest of the day. So I conducted all the rest of the orchestrations that day and, and went out for dinner with him that night. And he said, I want you to take over as my main arranger, conduct all my orchestras and come and join my band at the Cat's Whiskers. Um, and moved to London, and he offered me this gig that paid incredible money to compare to what I was doing in Britain. So I went home, packed my bags, moved to London, and started orchestrating, arranging, conducting. I was in the band, um, and that was 18, 1973, something like that. And this is off of the back, ironically now, of you working on a piece by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Ironically, it is, yeah. And later on, in the late 80s, you meet him in person. Can you tell us about how that uh, relationship started and how you met? Well, the strange thing is, I, I, for quite a while in the 80s, had a band called Shack Attack, which was a jazz funk band that I kind of produced and managed and arranged and played keyboards in. And they were on Polydor Records. So I'd been in and out of Polydor a lot. And David Munns was the music managing director, and he rang me on a Friday night, quite late, and said, Andrew Lloyd Webber wants to make a summer novelty record called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny. <laughs> and he wants, he wants a producer, and I said, yeah, he wants a producer who can produce shit like that. And he went, well, I, I, I wasn't going to say that. I said, is this a wind-up, David? He said, no, it's not a wind-up, Nigel. He really, he said, can you have a go over the weekend? So I said, all right. So I went in my studio uh, over the weekend and did the basic track with all the samples and everything, all the bits, sent it in to David. And on Monday night, I got a phone call from David. You and I are having dinner with Andrew Lloyd Webber tonight. And I went, why? He said, he loves it. He loves it. He thinks it's a huge hit. And, and uh, we've got to find out who's going to be on it. So we went to Andrew's Sidmonton, which is quite something. I had dinner with him. He was very... Uh, very chuffed with it all, and David had convinced him that Timmy Mallet should be the artist, which sort of backfired in the end. Uh, For anyone listening who doesn't know, because we have an international audience, who Timmy Mallet is, he was a TV presenter, radio and TV in the eight, late 80s, early 90s. Children's presenter, yeah, yeah. who was very well known back then. 
for being wacky, had a yeah, hammer. being didn't. stupid, being wacky. Um, so we made the record, and it came out three weeks later. It went straight to number one. And I went to Andrew's house for a number one party when it used to be announced on the radio, and I got there, and there were all his friends and people from the record company, and we were all sat round listening to the radio at 7 o'clock at night waiting for the number one, and then he, we had champagne. <laughs> And kind of everybody left, and then Andrew said, right, what next? I said, well, I looked at him and said, well, I don't know. He said, well, look, here's my original Joseph and his Technicolor album from 1968. Take it home, modernise it for me. And I went, right, okay. so what do you want? He said, I just want it to sound like today, not like it does. So I went home and spent two weeks and did four or five tracks, did Any Dream Will Do, which is all based around one sound on one keyboard that I I just happened to find the sound, press the button, and it did that. And I went, oh, there we are. <laughs> Any Dream Would Do took an hour. And then we went through and did a few of the rock tracks, went back to him, and he said, this is really, really wonderful. I really like this sound. And he said, if I could find a star to do it, in, I'd go for the West End again. And I said, well, you should talk to David Munns again because he's just signed Jason Donovan... And I'm doing some tracks on his album, and he really is quite a star at the moment. He's quite a pop star at the moment. He's just come off the Stock Aitken thing. So he rang David, and David said, well, I'll bring Jason down at the weekend. So Jason came to me. We recorded Any Dream Will Do. We went to see Andrew. I went home, and Jason rang me a week later and said, thanks, mate. He said, I've got a gig. He said, pay me a shitload of money. <laughs> I'm in the West End. Thanks for the gig. And that's how that happens. Suddenly we're in the Palladium. Suddenly we're in the West End. Suddenly, everything I did on my album is being transferred into the pit orchestra. And then, miraculously, we're coming out of the pit to make the album, so we're going back round in a circle again. Fortunately for me, I already had tracks. And Joseph, I went round the world and did seven productions worldwide. And it was released as a single, Any Dream Will Do. Any Dream Will Do got to number two. And it's the, and as I said at the start, when people may, may not necessarily know your name, but your influence will have been heard... That that's a great example. That Jason Donovan recording of Any Dream Will Do. Even now, yeah. it's that's the recording that you know. That's the that that famous the but, dun, dun dun. It's yeah, so. It, it's it's actually just a preset on a keyboard. I, I I thought I've got to do something different here, so I rang the hire company. I said, "Give me half a dozen of the latest keyboards, newest ones out that I haven't got in the studio. I want to I want to play." And we spent the whole Saturday playing with the chords. And that was at the top end of one of the keyboards. And I pressed a key, and it did that pattern. And I thought, that's new, that's different. It's kind of marimba kind of sequenced So I, I started singing along over it, and, and it, was, it was it. I just locked it in, and I put a click track down and played all the chords on that patch. And that is the basic of it. Since then, they never recreated it on any of the keyboards in the West End. They've all gone to find sounds and tried to play it manually. It never sounds right. But that, that was the magic of it all then. It was, it was kind of... And, we were, and, and I was in New York because Andrew called me into the theatre and he was asking about... I was, I was helping him with sound and I was helping him what the orchestra sounded like. and the, I was just submerged in theatre, which was new for me. And how was it stepping into that world? Well, it was kind of different and, and all, it was lovely. It was a bit awkward because I had no official position. I would just, when Andrew showed up, I'd be with him. And then he'd say, I don't like that, change it. So suddenly I found myself talking to the sound guy or the musical supervisor, the musical director, saying, um, can we change that? And they were looking at me as to, why? Well, Andrew wants it changed. And for a while, it took a lot, a lot for all these people in the West End to understand that I wasn't 
coming in on, off my own back trying to tell him how to do it, I was authorised by Andrew to to be his eyes and ears on productions, which I was and still am. And what so that this led to uh, a whole body of shows with Andrew that you it, it led to uh, everything he's pretty much ever done, and I've been there in pretty much every. I went on and straight after that I went on and reorchestrated the whole of um, Starlight Express because he wanted that done. Um, so that was the early 90s. And then we went into Sunset Boulevard Worldwide. And then we started, we did the Evita movie. And the Evita movie I wasn't actually even the producer on, but it went so horribly wrong on day one that by day three I'd been drafted in to sort out a horrible mess. But and you ended up being nominated for an Oscar. The no, the song got nominated. We we got nominated for a BAFTA for sound. BAFTA for sound. And and the song "You Must Love Me" got nominated and won and the won. Oscar. Yeah. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay tuned, and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every other week. And if you're subscribed, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. It's very, very easy to subscribe. If you've got an iPhone, just head to the podcast app. You'll see next to the logo of our show a little settings wheel that looks a bit like a cog. Click on that. A few options down. It says subscribe. And the best part is it's completely free. Now back to our chat with Nigel. When you're working on music that's already very well known and loved by, by a theatre-going public yeah. and you're modernising it or, 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 or tinkering with it, is that a minefield? It's a minefield when it's Andrew's music. I think it is with any renowned composer. They all have, and especially Andrew, they have a connection between the melodic note and the chord underneath. And if you mess with that structure, then you get screwed. So I kind of mess with it in between lines he hates singers ad-libbing too much he hates it being taken too far away and we've had you know disastrous disastrous times where somebody else has worked on it and it's arrived and it's just straight in the bin you just have to know how far you can push it before he's going to go that's not my music anymore and you just push it a little bit a little bit and then you oh hold on some of the decisions have been on paper, if I would have been very brave, but then I've listened to it and they're, they're great. So, for example, um, the arena tour of Superstar, The Temple, is setting it in a nightclub and making it sound like a, a full on dance track. Mm. How do you sell that idea to someone who wrote it in the 70s? You sell that idea to Andrew by telling him that his son Billy is the right guy to do the dance track. Of course. And then Billy comes in, puts a blinding dance track on it, says, Listen to this, Dad. And Dad goes, I love it. Yeah. That wasn't a tough sell. How do you listen to something and get the idea to go, OK, this is needs a new audience. Where do you begin? Well, that, that came from talking to Lawrence when we were talking it through originally. And he said, the guy at the top of the temple is going to be a DJ with decks. Therefore, I want this to be much more dance. And I said, well, it's, it's a tough one in 7-4 or whatever it's in, 5-4. I said, because it's not a dancey tune. He said, yeah, but nobody's going to know that, providing it sounds like it's a dancey tune. So we then just took a... Billy sent me half a dozen different grooves and we tried them out underneath. And we just literally put them under the band until we found the one that was really, really worked. And yeah. that, it was as simple as that. But going back to other shows such as Joseph, is it a case of listen to the original recording and just see what stands out to you as sounding dated and, and then 
what is there a process that you always do is it different it's it's a really funny thing because joseph i've just started work on a joseph animated movie and when i sat down with andrew to talk about it he said let's go back and start all over again and i went back and listened to that original album and i didn't i didn't recognize it it's moved so far gradually where i moved it and then each and everybody that's come in and orchestrated or moved it on has done it a bit more and a bit more and it's become almost complete pastiche and he said to me it's really tired and sounds pastiche of everything go back and listen to how exciting the original one was and i did and it is and it's a bunch of musicians in a rock band busking and some great lines that never got taken from the original record and moved on so now we're kind of making it a little bit more a little rockier a little bit more like it originally was so it go it goes around in circles stuff that you did 20 25 years ago goes out of fashion and then suddenly comes back and you go i'm hearing stuff on the radio now and go i did that 25 years ago but it's come back again as well as working with Andrew on all these huge productions for cinema and theatre, you've also been involved with a lot of the, the TV talent searches, uh, notably American Idol, X Factor, the musical ones such as How Should I Have a Problem Like Maria, Superstar. Do you have a favourite medium to work in? I suppose for the immediacy and the fun, it's television, especially television in America because it's, it's, it really keeps you on your toes. My favourite medium in it is doing a musical film because you can have a year and you can perfect it. I suppose in every other thing, in theatre and in, in, in television, it's gone and it's done, it's out there and there's not much you can do about it. On film, Evita took me two years and Phantom took me a year and a half and both of those were absolutely... They become the your love of your life for the entire time you're doing it until you know every inch and every centimetre of everything. And that's, to me, the best... But to keep you entertained, television, there's nothing quite like television, especially, I mean, X Factors, and I used to do the live big band, but the rest of it was pre-recorded, so we'd be in the studio. So shows like um, Andrew shows where it's a live orchestra and everything is live, that's, that's great. That's a real buzz. And how do you turn it around so quickly? When it's week after week after week of live shows, or even with Superstar, where it was, it was each night of, of uh, a couple Superstar of weeks. Superstar was a nightmare because it was nine days in a row. Yeah which meant there were something like 180 pieces of music. And Superstar is just time. It took me six weeks to write it all. So it's done in advance before uh, it's... Six days. So you wrote it all? Yeah. So you, you didn't have multiple arrangers? No, it was me. Wow. And, and quite often the pieces are extensive arrangements rather than just transcripts or replica versions. Yeah, yes. Oh, the, the, yeah. There were 183 arrangements, uh, and they asked me what I wanted, and I said six weeks... To write it, four weeks with the Jesuses, the G's I, um, <laughs> and then three days in a rehearsal studio with the band. I said three day, three days. I said I know these musicians. We, we will get through forty or fifty songs a day, long days, and that's what we did. I would write from six in the morning till ten or eleven. Then I'd go up to the rehearsal studio where Evie was there and Lou Hunt, Evie Burnett, and one other vocal coach, and we'd do the next chunk, and we do. I'd one more show with the nine of them and then I'd go home and carry on writing and then at weekends I'd write through so by the end of the six weeks there were 180 songs written arranged and Jerry and Ashley were choreographing had 180 scenarios dance routines settled we rehearsed we did the first day one person went home and 12 things went in the bin we threw the arrangements in the bin the, the choreography went out the window everything by day five, we'd thrown 60 things away, 60 or 70 away. 
in that kind of period when you're writing solidly for six weeks, like you yeah. said, what kind of downtime do you take? You don't. You, you literally don't. And, and to be fair, you're writing solidly for six weeks. When you've been doing it for 40 years, there are pencil sketches or orchestrations or you can lay your hands on and go, right, they want that ABBA song like the original. I've done that before. And you go in the shed and you go, there it is. Um send it to the copyist one off the list and when I got my list of 183 I think I ticked off 30 that I'd done before mm. and then when I went oh great I've only got 150 to do <laughs> and, and on the, the <laughs> weekly thing you finish the show on a Saturday night you have your production meetings Sunday you spend all day routining with the kids on the Monday and Tuesday you write Wednesday it gets copied Thursday, Friday you go in for rehearsal Saturday do your show and I think in the middle of my TV time, I did, I think it was Joseph, Any Dream Will Do, at the same time as I did Grease on ITV for Simon. So I would literally routine for Andrew on a Sunday, for Simon on a Monday, write Andrew's and Simon's on Tuesday, Wednesday, go and pre-record Simon's on a Thursday, leave my engineer mixing on a Friday while I went and re rehearsed the band. A Saturday morning I'd go and rehearse the band. Lunchtime I'd get on one of those bikes and go up to Wembley and do the sound check and watch the show with Simon and do any changes. Bike back in time for tea to do the live show with Andrew and I did that for nine weeks. That's the problem. <laughs> when you're that good, everybody wants you. In what way does producing a soundtrack differ from your experience of conducting a show in a theatre or doing a theatrical version? It's, it's changed over the years. We used to have time and money to, to, to lovingly, lavishly make it sound like a proper record um, and enhance it. And if there's 12 or 14 in the pit, we'd add a string section, we'd upgrade the arrangements, we'd bring some extra, bring the, the chorus in and track them up and... Now it gets weird. They're very, very few made anymore. And when they are, they're all in one room in a day, throw it down. Um, I don't like it. last one I did like that was Sweeney Todd. Um, we did that in a day. Under the pressure of it, 7.30 in the morning, I'm sat having a coffee waiting for the orchestra to arrive and Stephen himself walked in. I didn't even know he was in London. He finished about 11.30 that night and I turned around and he said, great job, well done. And he poured a glass of wine and we sat there and chatted till one in the morning. He was lovely, fantastic. Um, but that's the way it's done nowadays. All in one day. Uh, and then I took it back to my studio, mixed it in three or four days, handed it over. Why is that? What's, the, what's new? Costs, budgets... It, the, 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 there, is a, there is a there is a disconnect right now between how many of those albums sell and the equity deals. The minute you get into a cast album, you've got equity on your case. Everybody's got to get this. Everybody's got to be paid that, and then the band's got to be paid that, and the singer's got to be paid that. And before you know it, you've got a huge amount of money. Stage management have to be paid. Theatre have to be paid. There's an equity deal now that makes those albums practically impossible to do, and. I don't see any time in the future where they're going to back down. And what's happening is they're not getting made or somebody's sticking a mic up and making a live album and they're sticking out second rate. So I'm kind of more or less out of that business. It takes a, a, a very special project for me to go and do it because they'll usually turn around and say, you've got to do it in a day, you've got no money to do it with and we want it next week. And it's like, it's not going to be very good if we do that. Well, we don't care, that's all we've got, uh, you know. 
The Les Miserables movie is the first movie musical to record live vocals. No, it's not. Oh, really? No, it's not. That was a great ploy to plug it, to win a BAFTA, to win an Oscar. Right. And Andy Nelson, who is a great friend of mine who makes that, uh, rang me up and said, sorry, I've just won an Oscar. I said, well, you should have won it for Evita. Huge, huge chunks of Evita were done like that. Oh, really? The dying scene or the boardroom scenes or the elevator scenes, they were all done live. And uh, how is it working in that... I, it just strikes me as that must be a nightmare, recording the, the sound live at the same time, uh, getting the singer to do it live and take after take. I, I'm not going to go into that, but if you sit and watch Les Mis... To be able to do it live, everything has to be in close-up because you can't do live with a boom mic yeah. or unless you've got a costume on, so it has to be in close-up. So whenever it's not in close-up, it can't be live. Yeah. All the cast and ensemble were pre-recorded way before. When he's standing on top of the ship at the beginning, that can't be live. There were sections of it done live. It wasn't wholly live, yeah. and we did the same thing. And, and at the time, Andrew was pretty outraged that they were saying it's the first time it's ever been done. Uh, but I guess, you know, Alan Parker didn't want to stand up and say, you're, you're talking rubbish. But it was a very good marketing ploy, and everybody said, oh, it's so much more believable when it's like that. And, but you need the story to, to win the Oscar, don't you? For the, you do. For the press of it. How do you switch off? You, you, it sounds like you don't stop working, especially just talking about doing, when you were working with Simon Cowell on the Grease talent search and Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, at the same time, zipping between the two on a courier motorbike. I, I don't think I do. I, I've had a desire to do a grand design and I'm about to start building my own house. That means I will have to switch off a bit. Um, I don't listen to music. I When I switch off, I just stop and go abroad and go somewhere hot and sit by a pool. Or I can only do it for a short time. I go away every Christmas and New Year. And last year we did it for three weeks, and the last week was horrible. I just wanted to get back to work. So we do two weeks, and then we do a couple of weeks in the summer. We have a question that we ask everyone we interview, mm. and you can take this question however you like. Yeah. Is show business a game that you need to learn how to play? Oh, it's very definitely. There are plenty of players in it. I think I've been in it long enough to know how to play the game. However, every year I find a new trick that somebody's playing, and it's usually to stitch somebody up. It's usually to throw somebody out of the business. It's usually to steal somebody's work. And that's the horrible bit of show business. There are plenty of people in our business who would undercut you, undermine you, sell it cheaper just to, to get it done and with the advent of technology there are 30 40 younger versions of me out there who will go in and ask nothing to do it with a laptop and and the answer to that is well fine if that's what the record company wants you'll come to me in the end and go this is a mess can you sort it out or you'll end up with a shitty product but meanwhile i'll just do the things that i really I hope hopefully thankfully now i'm at a position where i'll just do the things i really want to do and they've got to have a decent budget and they've got to have a decent crew and staff and then we'll do them. I've looked at some of them and just gone, no, I, I don't want to work with him or him or him or her. In the past, they've stitched me up in some way or other, so please leave me out of that one. And that's my lesson is I know what goes on all the time, and people believe I don't, but I, I've got a list up there. Nigel, you've worked with some of the biggest stars in the world. Star quality. Is it something that you can learn, or is it just something that people are born with? No, they're, they're born with it. If, if you've learned it, it really doesn't mean anything. They, they are, you know, 
we did five days with Barbara Streisand and from the minute that woman walks in the building the minute she walks out she is a star and there's no doubt and the same as Madonna all these people the people that I've worked with have all been fantastic and it's, it, usually they are fantastic their entourage are the pain in the ass. they are great everybody around them tries to make out that they want this and they want that and they want the other and then when you actually talk to them they go what? they don't know anything about this myth that's being but, but anybody who's been created a star, quite often, if they've been created a star, then they don't really know how to do it, and they're insecure in their stardom. And when they're insecure in their stardom, they'll turn on the people around them who are trying to help them be a star. And with all the different types of people that you've dealt with down through the years, what's the common denominator between the, the, the types of people that you like to keep working with? A talent. Uh, and it works both ways. Um, they need to know that you know what you're doing. And I've been tested so many times. Barbara Streisand, we did a whole day to vocal. I went home, I came back the next day, she changed one word and she asked me what it was and I told her straight away. Instantly there's a trust. Madonna changed the mix while I was in the bathroom. I came back and said, why have you done that and put the fader back what it was? Then it's all right. If you know what you're doing... They'll trust you and you trust them. And that's what, it's a mutual trust of, of your, both your talents that my talent will serve your talent and won't get in the way. You're still clearly as passionate about music as you must have been when you were 13 working in that business that you set up. When you reach the stage that you're at, having with this huge body of work behind you, are there still things that you want to achieve? Uh, yeah, before I go on to that, I'm still passionate about music. I'm not as passionate about the music business anymore. I think it's in a complete shambles. I think it's a complete mess. I think thanks to all these streaming sites, it's not worth doing a lot of things anymore for very many people. Um, I admire people uh, like Adele who wouldn't have a record streamed and said, if you want it, buy it. She went on to sell millions and millions of records. And if she hadn't done that, you know, somebody has to stand up to the digital era and the streaming era because as artists we don't receive even I, I look at and as a producer of albums I probably receive a tenth of what I did ten years ago now and everybody can go oh you poor you you're, you're getting less less of a million than you used to well actually it's got to the point where you actually think should I bother to do that because it's not going to earn me a single cent albums that have gone to number three and number four in the charts and you get a royalty check for 350 quid, do you think, what's the point of giving a month of my time? <laughs> you work that out a day, there's about 20 quid a day you've earned. So the business is a mess. Um, I've just moved, built a brand new studio, which I adore. After 35 years of having one studio and then starting a new, I, I did it completely for, um, for screen and TV. I'm working on a big Broadway 4D project which is exciting I like the movies and the television shows I kind of I'm bored to tears of making records with artists that go nowhere I'm inundated with artists who say produce my album produce my album and you have to say I'd love to but and it's all about how long is it going to take me how much have you got to spend on it and who's going to promote it and, and who on earth is going to buy it and there's hundreds of them bless them who get signed to these little labels and they make an album and it sells 20 copies they're disappointed, you get nothing, everybody's disappointed. You have to go, come on, man, be realistic. You've got to be at a certain place in your life before you can actually make an album that's going to sell enough to satisfy you as an artist 
and actually make you any money that you could live off. It's all about live now. You've got to have a gig and you've got to be in a show to survive in the business. I even heard, I listened to an interview with Noel Gallagher recently yeah. and he was talking about his solo albums and yeah. he was talking about the fact that, because he likes to have strings on all of his yeah. work now and he has his own label so he produces it himself yeah. but, but pays for it himself and the cost is in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands yeah. so the only way he can pay for it is if he then does a tour. So the tour is to pay for the work that he's done yeah. and he gets to a point of going, what what? What am I making this for? Well, the, the Who have recently said they'd love to make another album, but there is no point. It will be pirated, it will be streamed, and they won't make a penny. So they're not going to bother. We'll play some new music on our tour, but we're not going to bother to record it. And, and, and the, the consequence of all of this that nobody thinks about here is that when I want to record strings now, I've been dedicated to using real musicians in England for a very long time. Every record company will not allow you to use British musicians anymore because of all the repeat fees you have to go and record in Prague or Russia because they'll let you buy it out well, that's not doing our industry or our business any good telling you all the time to go abroad and do it because it's cheaper it is I understand that but it doesn't help our industry which is flat on its arse at the moment you know when you um, work with lots of the people who come to prominence through reality TV shows mm. and, and some of them go on to be very successful but do you see any common thread between those people who are suddenly launched into fame and the people who have grafted for it for years and years and years, is professionalism something that can you can really only learn through the graft? Well, the, the, the problem is, yeah, the, the, the graft, it's not just the graft. You're learning how to behave in the business. You're learning how the business works. You're building a fan following slowly but surely till you get there. Then you've got everything you need to do the job and all the people that have followed you. You go on a TV show, in six weeks you have to turn into this person who knows how to do interviews and how to do that, and has no following other than people who voted for them. And only something like 6% of people who vote for those TV shows will actually buy a record by that person. And history's littered. There's not been a star of The Voice. And there have been half a dozen stars of X Factor, I suppose One Direction, the only people who really became big. All the rest of them are gone or, are, honestly, are in... There's a big hoo-ha about they're all just going into West End shows and touring shows and taking the, the, the roles from equity members. Well, as, as a producer, you go, well, I can cast you or I can cast Ollie Moers. Ollie Moers brings with him 20,000 people to sit in the, in the bums and seats. So, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're all washing down to our business. Uh, it's like the West End pit. It's full of the greatest musicians in England now because there are no recording sessions anymore. They can't get gigs during the day because there aren't any sessions for records. Everybody does it on a computer. So they're all sitting in the chairs in the West End and they're great bands. We have a question that we ask everybody at the end of each interview. And that is that... What is the one piece of advice that you would give to anybody who wanted to work inside the West End? Learn your stuff, learn your job. Just get in there and get going from the work. You know, work out what you want to do and learn how to do it properly. There's no doubt when people stand up on that stage to audition, you can tell where they come from, what their upbringing is. And, and it actually works in reverse sometimes. If they've been to one of these stage schools and learn a certain way to do it, that doesn't wash anymore. They've learnt it, but when you get up there, adapt everything you know to the situation you're in. Because some of them will get up there and give a stage school performance and you'll see a director go, oh, not another one. 
And you see that on TV shows. They go up and think, if I do all my D's and T's and smile and tits and teeth and everything, the minute they do that, you know the training is. And I get really cross. We did the Maria show in Canada, and the, the coach we had out there was a stage school teacher. And the, when we had all the Dorothys in a row, it was like, oh what are we going to do they are all identical stage school don't know how to do it any other way than that and the answer for me is work out what you're trying to achieve and work out how much of your training is going to help you and how much of it's going to hinder you because it will hinder you as well as help fantastic Nigel, thank you so much for talking to us. I feel like you're one of those people. I could, I could sit and ask questions and and listen to your stories. I would do a part two. Yeah, we'll do a part two. Oh man, I'd love that. Honestly, I've really enjoyed, really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. It's a real honour. Thank you. There he was, Nigel Wright. I mean, I've already made it quite clear in that interview how much we absolutely loved chatting to Nigel and asking all those questions. We could have kept going for hours. So, Nigel. Thanks so much. We'd love you to get in contact with us. We're on Twitter at Inside West End. We would also love you to keep sharing our episodes online or by word of mouth. Both go a really long way. So keep it going. That's all for this week. Keep an eye on Twitter at Inside West End to see who's our guest on next week's show. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 